Come, Lord Jesus. Yes. Right now, it'd be fine. (laughs) I wouldn't have to preach. Actually, it would have been better if he'd come before the scripture reading and Ted wouldn't have had to do that. All those names. He thought I'm choosing him on purpose because the last time he read scripture was a few years ago and he read the first chapter of the book of Matthew. It was the genealogy. He said, I think you're doing this to me on purpose. I said, no, I'm not really. But uh, Would you turn back, if, if you have a Bible nearby, to that book of Nehemiah? It's toward the front of the Old Testament, past the Pentateuch. You hit Kings, Chronicles, then Ezra, then Nehemiah. If you hit Esther or Job, you've gone too far. Um, There are times in all of our lives when we need just the right word of encouragement, Uh, aren't there? Uh, Or help or, or, or hope. There's a proverb, actually, about that. Um, Proverbs twenty five eleven says that the right word spoken at the right time is like what? What's it say? An apple of gold in a setting of silver. Yeah. That's the writer's way of saying it's valuable, it's precious, it's a beautiful thing. The right word spoken at the right time to encourage. Uh, just this last week, uh, my wife, Annette, told the story of a moment like that in her life. Um, though she is very dedicated to it now. Back when she was in high school, she had no interest at all in any sort of physical exercise. She developed that in college at Asbury, actually under the influence of Barb, Barb Krause. It wasn't Barb Krause? Who, who was it? Rita Pritchett. Sorry, Barb. <laughs> anyway, her high school gym teacher, Annette's high school gym teacher, was an older guy who once upon a time was an athlete. Uh, But over the years, let's just say all of his muscles settled into his midsection, okay? Uh, So his idea of teaching gym was to sit in a chair and bark at the students. Uh, So one day the assignment was to run a mile on the school track, which seemed impossible to Annette at the time. But she strategized that maybe if she ran slowly enough, she might be able to actually finish it. So as she ran very slowly past her teacher, who was seated sort of overflowingly in a chair there by the track, she looked to him for a word of encouragement. And his word to her, hustle it, slug butt. (laughs) An apple of gold, you see? Right when you need it. Right there. You'd probably get the coach fired today. A similar sort of thing actually happened to me in high school after a particular football practice where I had gotten knocked around quite a bit as I walked off the field with the assistant coach who worked with my dad at the telephone company. I looked to him for an encouraging word. Coach Burton looked at me. He cursed, which I will not repeat that part. And he said, diddle. You're just like your dad. And I was was shocked, and I had no idea what he meant. And he saw that. And and then he said, obviously, still frustrated. He said, to be good at this game, you have to want to get out there and kill people. But you just don't have that in you. You're just like your dad. (laughs) Um, So in the end, I do think that was a compliment. Uh, But it, it didn't seem like it at the time. 
uh, not much of an apple of, of gold. But we've all had them. We've had times of discouragement. We've needed an apple of gold. We've needed a word from somebody that we respect that lifts us up, that encourages us on, lightens our load, you know. Um, and that is just what the people of Jerusalem needed here in this text that Ted read for us. Uh, so let's look at that. But first, let's back up just a little bit because the scene needs to be set just a little. Jerusalem, you know, had been all but destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians invaded. And they deported most of her citizens. And for 70 years, the city lay in, in devastation. I, I have tried to picture that in my mind. I find I picture something of a post-apocalyptic, you know, Mad Max kind of place. Uh, where a few people, uh, the unimportant people who were left behind after the deportation because the, the Babylonians took all the, the high-quality people. <laughs> That's what they thought. Those few people that were left, they kind of rattled around in the ruins in rags. But after 70 years, fulfilling the prophecies of Jeremiah, uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, who had overtaken Babylon in the intermediate time, the king of Persia began to resettle the Jews in their homeland intentionally. Uh, that was a, a philosophical difference between the Babylonians and the Persians. The Babylonians, when they uh, took over a nation, they removed, their philosophy was, you remove all the people from all of the people's past, and you force them to integrate, and you force them to assimilate into the new whole. But Persia was different. Persia was much more open to leaving people in their historical settings, letting them practice their customs. They hoped that that kind of goodwill would create peace with the people they overtook. And that's why Cyrus even helped the Jewish exiles return to Jerusalem. And you can read all about that at the end of 2 Chronicles and on into the book of Ezra. Um, Cyrus first sent a fellow named Zerubbabel with about 50,000 Jews. And they set about rebuilding the temple. That was the first priority to them. Uh, then years later, another Persian king, Artaxerxes, sent the priest Ezra, along with another contingent of Jewish families, to help reestablish order and particularly temple worship there in the city. Uh, and then again, after a few more years pass, Nehemiah is sent from Persia to Jerusalem to take on the task of rebuilding the city wall. Now, uh, you know, you read about that in, in the Bible, and you see just print on a page. Uh, and when you do, it's very easy to forget the human element involved in accomplishing something like that. Those days and years were far from easy for those returning exiles. Th those first ones, they kind of live like frontiersmen, you know? Uh, going to a war-ravaged land, starting from almost nothing to rebuild society. The society that they used to know, their ancestors knew, their parents, maybe grandparents knew, rebuild all that. And though the prevailing power, you know, the, the big superpower, Persia, and her leaders were for this project, and they helped over and over again. Uh, the many smaller kingdoms that surrounded Jerusalem did everything they could to make it difficult for those resettlers. 
they slandered them. They, they were constantly sniping at them. They tried to change the mind of Persia. They wrote letters to her kings saying, hey, you shouldn't let this happen. That's a big reason why Nehemiah went to rebuild the city wall because there was no peace. There's no security in the city because these local strong men, you know, they're raiding parties. The, the, the Jewish families, they were under constant threat because the wall of the city, the security of the city was broken down. Even as the wall was being rebuilt, you know this, Nehemiah chapter 4 tells us how the laborers carried their weapons with one hand you know, and, and they laid stone with the other. That was the environment there in the city. That was the environment in which they worked. Kind of like working retail today. <laughs> you, know? you, you never know what kind of person is going to walk in the door. On top of that, Nehemiah chapter 7 tells us how even at, at that date... The homes in Jerusalem had not yet been rebuilt. Uh, So all this work was going on by people who were living in shacks or living in tents. No security at all. It's, It's really, if you get the picture, I mean, if you can imagine that, it's really remarkable what the people there in Jerusalem accomplished in those days. Uh, You know, I, I thought it's sort of like what the people of Kiev are doing today. Uh, I saw a documentary a few months ago about how, I don't know whether this is still going on. This was, this was when the war was a little bit younger over there. But in Kiev, as soon as a bomb hit a street or a building or, or, or something else, and it was damaged, of course, the policy there in the Ukrainian capital was to repair the damage immediately. That's a psychological strategy, you see. To help the people there stay strong and stay resilient. It sends the message that they're not going to give in to these Russians. And they're going to do all they can to keep life normal and keep life going. So even under very present threat, even while missiles are landing nearby, the people are out there rebuilding what had just been damaged. That's what the Jews did there in Jerusalem. Even under constant threat, they worked and they worked on this rebuilding project. And they did it. Nehemiah 6.15 tells us that in just 52 days, they rebuilt the city wall. With God's help, they'd accomplished this tremendous, tremendous thing. And in celebration of this, they all assembled together and they asked the priest Ezra to come and read to them the word of God. That's how they chose to celebrate. And that tells you something about the nature of the people there. Uh, They accomplish this great thing. They record a big win. And in response, they do not go to Disney World. They get together and they want to worship. They call for Ezra. Ezra did not initiate this. He did not set the agenda for the meeting. He did not determine what should be read. There's all kinds of things that could have been read. He did not determine it. He didn't even call the meeting. It was all the people's idea. And so they assembled, says men, women, and children. And Ezra read the law of God. Scripture said, we don't know exactly what he read. Some part of the Pentateuch, some part of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Some people think it was the book of Deuteronomy. Or something like the book of Deuteronomy. Um, Now, of course, most of those people had very limited reading ability. And none of them had copies of this in their home, 
like we do today. So they highly valued those times when God's word was read to them and then explained and interpreted to them. It says by the other priests that were there. Verse 8 tells us about that. And we're not exactly sure how that worked logistically. Maybe Ezra read a part of of the word and then the priests, the Levites, uh, had been assigned to smaller groups, so they went and they explained details and maybe answered questions. We have really no idea. Uh, but we do know that the people did not just sit there and wait for the closing song. Okay? They were listening. They were engaged. They had come ready to worship. And as they heard the word of God, the significance of what they were hearing overcame them. They understood What Ezra was reading was nothing less than the the desires and the character and the very will of God being revealed to them. They were learning of God's person. They were learning of God's nature. God was revealing himself to them. And as all of that happened, as the weight of the significance of that settled down upon them, that combined with their open hearts to God, Caused them, verse 9 there says, to begin to cry, to begin to weep. As they were reminded of who God really is, they were also confronted with who they really were. And they were convicted of their sin and they felt shame and they felt guilt and they realized they needed to repent. They needed to make some changes in their lives. All from hearing part of the Pentateuch, the Word of God, it's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. God was moving. He was doing something. Through the reading of his word, he was doing something in their hearts. That is every pastor's true desire. (laughs) Uh, That people would gather truly ready for worship, open to God, open to his word, and then honestly and unashamedly respond to him. Um, But now this is where it gets really interesting. At this point, Some religious leaders, if they were in this position here, would want and would call for this sort of weeping and repentance to continue, to keep on going. Now, that's not to say it's not important sometimes and it's not worthwhile. It is. But just the same, there are also some religious leaders who enjoy capitalizing on people's emotional responses and intentionally do things to extend them. Some presume that if a little guilt and a little crying is good, then more guilt and more crying is better. But that was not what these leaders did. You see, these leaders, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the priests, they were a wise bunch. They knew all that the people gathered there had been through. They understood that. They knew that this congregation was both physically tired and emotionally wrung out. They knew their lives had been hard, very hard, and that they'd lived through all sorts of difficulty. And in spite of it, they'd accomplished this great, great work. And then on top of that, the leaders there saw that the response of the people to the word of God as it was being read was genuine. It was real. They were truly repentant. They were truly seeking. The people there were truly sorry. And so rather than trying to place more burdens on their shoulders, 
Ezra, Nehemiah, and the leaders there encourage the people to now celebrate. They told them, look, you know, you've been through hard stuff. And you've accomplished a great work. And you've sought God. And you've responded to him genuinely. He has seen your sorrow. He has forgiven your sin. He has blessed you. And this is all good. This is all really, really good. In fact, so now, as the holy people of God rejoice in all these good things. That's what they told him. As the holy people of God rejoice in this holy day. In other words... The leaders told the people there, get up and party on. That's what they said. And this was the word those people needed to hear, you see. To a tired people living under extreme tension, honestly seeking God in a desolate, difficult place. This was the apple of gold that that group of people in that moment Needed to hear. Rejoice. Celebrate. Play. Eat. Drink. Be merry. Not because for tomorrow you may die. But because God. Your God. Is good. And he has heard you. And he has helped you. And he has forgiven you. And he has blessed you. So there's no reason. For further guilt. And further shame. On the contrary, there was all the reason in the world to celebrate. Because in spite of the hardships of their lives, the people there were indeed doing what God wanted them to do. This was the apple of gold. This was the word that they needed to hear. This was a celebration that fed their minds, it fed their bodies, it fed their spirits. It was a party that gave them the power to cope with the reality of their situation, but with the eternal reality that God was with them. Sometimes that is exactly what we need, a celebration. We need a party in order to have the health and the stamina, the power, and the ability to cope with life in this broken world. And the leaders there knew that. Now let me say, notice that this party that they called for, this was not based on a lie. Okay? It was not based on a lie. Some people, some people just want to say to other people, hey, don't worry, be happy. When really... That person, they don't know God, they don't know Jesus, they don't have any idea where their eternity is going. They have no good eternal reason to be happy. You and I, we never want God to find us guilty of lying to people just to make them feel better. Okay? What Ezra and Nehemiah are doing here, this isn't that. This was a celebration based in the spiritual reality of their situation and their attitude before God. You see, for the heart that is truly open to God, there's always a measure of joy that comes from knowing his will. Uh, Now, (laughs) knowing God's will can be a threat to those who resist him. Uh, But to those who are willingly obedient and listening for God, knowing his will is a great relief. And it's a great source of joy. That's the first source of joy. Then even more joy comes from being forgiven of sins. Uh, 
to know that God has heard our repentance and has forgiven us. And then there's still more joy that comes from walking with that God. Walking with God consistently in humility and obedience. To know God is leading your life and informing your decisions and, and kind of shaping your future. That brings tremendous peace and happiness and contentment and joy. All of that brings joy. In increasing measures, it brings joy. And that's the sort of joy that those in Jerusalem there were living on this day, or they needed to be living it on this day. Now, of course, the deepest joy, though, that these people did not know, could not know, the deepest joy comes from truly knowing Jesus, the long-expected Savior who finally arrived. The deepest joy comes from knowing that he is real and that he's there and that he lived and died and was raised again to pay for our sins. So no more sacrifices, you know, no more burnt offerings, no more blood and bulls and birds. And Jesus took care of that. He died once for all. To the honest seeker, to the repentant heart, to the obedient soul, Jesus brings every reason to party and to celebrate and to laugh. Every reason. Like that's, the song says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. So no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or till he calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. And not just stand, but stand happily and joyfully, laughing at the devil and his plans and schemes to steal, kill, and destroy. Because in Jesus, though battles may still rage around us, the war is long over, friends. Long over. And all in Jesus have already won. We've already won. King David knew something about that kind of release, although he was, you know, centuries before Jesus. In Psalm 37, he writes, The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. And then, of course, in Psalm 23, David writes, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What's that mean? It means that even when the evil and brokenness of our world seems to surround us, God gives us a reason to celebrate, to feast. That was David's experience with God. That's what Nehemiah and Ezra were trying to communicate to those faithful people there in Jerusalem. And, and friends, that is God's word for all who love and follow him today. Take time to celebrate because we have good reason to celebrate. I wonder if there is something, some circumstance, some situation in your life that, that kind of has you on the ropes today. Uh, maybe you're tired. Maybe... Maybe you have worked hard and you have followed the Lord and you have done as he's asked you to do. And still there is difficulty and, and you feel this conflict around you. Listen, do not let that get you down. Do not give in to frustration. Do not give in to despair. Rehearse God's goodness and forgiveness 
and blessings in your life and choose to celebrate those things. Choose to celebrate, just as it was for those under Ezra and Nehemiah's care, and even more in Jesus. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. He can be. He will be. He wants to be. He wants to be. Father, would you come and strengthen us with your joy, um, the hope and the peace and the promise that comes with knowing you uh, for us all because of Jesus? Would you come and lighten hearts and lift burdens and set us at your table for a feast of joy, a party? Because even in the midst of difficulty, we know Jesus. We know how the story ends. And that brings a laugh to our heart and a smile to our face. May it be so in all of us here today who are seeking you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.